Would you get, begin, Mr. Holmes, by telling us, uh, is Stuart Holmes your real name? No, uh, I took that name when I was about 17. I changed it uh, to Stuart Holmes. My right name is Joseph Liebchen, which translated means sweetheart. <laughs> you can't get through life with that kind of a name. How long have you been in pictures, Mr. Since 1909. Mm -hmm. And how did, you, uh, how did you happen to get into them? Would you tell us that story? Well, a fellow, an actor, was telling me uh, I could make five bucks. I said, legitimately? He says, yes. He says, you work in pictures. You walk across the stage and... Uh, they give you lunch and five bucks. So I went up there with him. It was the Edison Company. Was, was this in New York? Yes, in New York on uh, 177th Street. Uh, Who was the director at that time? Do you remember? Um, Cyril Dawley, little man with one eye. Yes. Did, uh, did you continue with him for a while? Did you work with him for several months? On and off, on and off. There was a little fellow there that in a scene I stuck him with a spear. And in clowning, the, fellow, the actors told me that he was a leading man at Vitagraph. So naturally, I bought a new suit and I went to Vitagraph and they uh, took me around and introduced me to the different directors. And uh, the next day I was put in a battle scene, Les Miserables, with, and the man that I... Uh, uh, Maurice Costello that I was spearing, that was the leading man there. He was the idol of the day. So the second day, they uh, put me on another picture called uh, The Way of the Cross in heavy uh, armor of the time, bandana, uh, colored legs, red wig, very hot. They had 40 scenes in the picture, and the way I fooled around, well, uh, they only got 30, and they fired me. Yeah, Bill Reynolds, Bill Reynolds, that was the man. That was the man that also made the um, picture of the life of Moses. And when the procession came towards the camera, they found that the baby Moses was a female. And the director was howling, put your hand over it, and they didn't know what they meant. <laughs> Were you in that too? No, no. No, I was through with that. Then after the photograph, I went to the Powers Company up on 177th Street. Pat Powers was the, the man used to sell or made his fortune with bicycles. So we worked with a director by the name of Joseph Golden. And that was the first time I ran into Irving Cummings. That was his first picture. Pearl White was the leading woman. That was before she went into serials. When I was with him about, oh, nine months, all kinds of color grease paint in my ears at the finish of a day. You played an Indian one day, and the next day you played a gentleman, then you played, well, a lot of other things. Did you go out on location much for those pictures, Mr. Holmes? No, it was done all around the studio. Very little. What was Pearl White like in those days? She well, she was very positive. All I can remember that she had on that blonde wig and liked very cutie-cutie. To me, she seemed to be an imitation of... <laughs> <laughs> Mary Pickford, they were spats, or chaps, rather. Then, uh, after the Powers engagement, you went to uh, Calum, was it? Yes, Calum. They, uh, I made a picture with them, with Tom Moore and Alice Joyce. And the director, I forget his name, 
seemed to be very much annoyed with me because I insisted to, uh, to the, the actor, Moore and uh, the other girl, Alice Joyce, don't let the photograph you so far away. Get up close. Make them come up close on you. Well, they start to call me close-up Holmes. <laughs> well, I didn't... Uh, they finally sent me on the road with a fellow by the name of J.P. McGowan, a director, and we went to Birmingham, Alabama, Shades Mountain up on the hill. And uh, we made pictures there. And again, I told the, the director, uh, J.P. McGowan, don't... Uh, get the actors close to the camera. I had just seen a picture by Griffith called uh, The Musketeers of Pig's Alley. So I talked him into close-up, and he did use very many close-ups. In fact, they sent him word afterwards, uh, director from Jacksonville, the main studio, stick to the eight-foot foreground. When I was fired, but the um, funny part of it was, Marion, the producer, came in his yacht to Jacksonville, and when he saw the stuff, he says, that's the stuff I want, the stuff that I've been telling him to do, the close-ups. You're just spoken about seeing the Musketeers of Pig Alley, Mr. Holmes. Can you tell us uh, what other films you remember seeing as a boy and doing that? Oh, well, I think the greatest, the greatest thing that Griffith did was the uh, Telltale Heart, you know. Yeah. I thought that was the greatest picture. And, uh, well, naturally, we saw all the others. I never went to any pictures except Biograph, G.M. Anderson, because he always was very funny when he pulled a gun, and, and Max Sennett's comedies. I mean, in those days, he worked for Griffith, but Sennett was funnier than all the comedians. Do you remember seeing any of the Max Lender pictures from France? Yes, yes. He always had a pot under the bed, every scene that he played. <laughs> <laughs> when you were with Calum, uh, were you sent down to Florida, or were you no, we were, uh, we were sent to Birmingham, Alabama, and we wound up in Jacksonville, Florida. Yes, that's right. Then after the Calum engagement, you went with a company called uh, Raymo. Ra Raymo, yes. I went up there with an actor, and uh, the fellow that happened to be directing, Willie Davis, I knew him as an extra boy, and he became an assistant. He says, I've got a great part for you, an artist. And I said, what, what do you want? I says, 10 bucks a day. So he went in and they came out and said, well, no, we can't pay you 10, we pay you 750. In the meantime, I found out from the secretary that there's a fellow in there that I, who was the manager that I had clowned with and he didn't like it. He says, Holmes is a bad actor. He doesn't move his feet. <laughs> <laughs> so I was with them for nine months. In fact, they were down across the street. Uh, uh, Ray Fiziog was the man, and he was in the street across, in the saloon across the street, trying to sell the joint. Eh? So I came in there, and I made a, a two-reeler, man and woman. And my next picture with them was a comedy, a three-reel comedy, the first one ever made, called Doggone Baron. Eh? Oh, yeah. Then we did another one called The Worker, took, taken from Emil Zola's uh, The Worker. So I stayed with them. We did quite a few pictures for nine months. And after I left them, they folded up. In, in, in fact, Fox was buying these pictures from the uh, Rainbow Company. Yes, I remember they were distributing them. Yes. So then I finally uh, left them, you see. And then, uh, then you went to work for Fox. Fox. Mm -hmm. That must have been about uh, 19, uh, late 1914. Well, about around 13, see. When I went there and they uh, put on a picture called Life Shop Window, 
by uh, I think Best of Victoria or something else. Best yeah. of Victoria. It was a bad story. It was very bad. And uh, then I worked with, um, oh, I think I worked with all these actors that they had, Theodore Barrow and Virginia Pearson. Yes, he went into the sex before anybody else. For instance, in the earlier days, in the Edison days, women rarely drank or crossed their legs. Mm -hmm. eh? It was really Fox that broke the barrier on the sex angle. Would you tell us a little about working with Theda Barrow? What do you remember of her? Well, she always reminded me as though she was in a trance. She was nearsighted, and in working with her, she would always try to think of dialogue and silent pictures, which was correct, you see. And all I could do was just simply look at her and wait until she got through with the, ta with the tragedy. <laughs> and she couldn't understand what I did, you know, see. But the fact is that I did nothing, you see. And she talking her head off seemed to intrigue the people that saw the picture. Yes. Yeah, she, was, uh, she has a quality that I have noticed in Sasa Hayakawa, uh, who has a deadpan. And uh, uh, Rudy Valentino at times had that same thing. They had such dark eyes, penetrating eyes, that you always wonder what they were thinking about, yes. which made it interesting, you see. Was, uh, was uh, Theda Barrow difficult at all on the set, or was she grand lady at any time? Or? Oh, I think she stumbled through everything. I had worked with her in a play, The Devil by Molnar, and she was one of the ladies in, in, uh, in the group. Her, her name was Theodosia DiCapri, I think she went under that name at that time. Then I worked in the Clemenceau case with her, uh, with uh, Theodore Barrow, you yeah, see. Yeah, that was in the Dumas play, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. We have a still at Eastman House that shows, uh, it's a small one, it's of you and Theodore Barrow, and she's holding a key up like this against the door. Do you know what that would be from? I think it was from one of those early ones, like uh, the Clemenceau case or uh, Lady Audley's Secret. I wonder if it could, no, it could have been the Clemenceau case. Yeah. I also worked with uh, Nance O'Neill, you see, uh -huh. and a uh, very funny thing, uh, when they sent me to Jamaica, they, uh, I went there with Robert B. Mantell, and uh, I didn't want to go, and Fox said, look here, he says, you've knocked everybody else over, you've got two good Shakespearean actors to knock over. So I worked with him in six pictures, and uh, Herbert Brennan was there making a picture of the Daughter of the Gods, with Annette Kellerman, and they had about, oh, 60 mermaids. So when I came to the Kingston, or the, the, the uh, hotel in Kingston, the Myrtle Bank, the actors went up to the desk and registered and said, I'd like a quiet room, and the writer wanted a quiet room, and I said nothing, so they shoved me up on the top floor. So the first night, the bed started to shake, and I couldn't figure what the devil was the matter with it. An earthquake, see, and I looked out of the window, nobody moved, so I said, okay. The next night there was terrific screaming, and it seems that the girls had been, all these mermaids had been up at Annette Bay, and when they came back, they were going into the showers and running around these halls. <laughs> so I was up there with 60 mermaids, who always thought it was very funny to push each other into my room as they came from the baths. <laughs> Well, uh, 
It's funny, you know, I was the first man to do Negro pictures. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. What's I was there with... Uh, with uh, Caleb Company in New Orleans. And we did a thing called the the Bucktown Romance, a lady barbershop, a colored AB barbershop. And we sent it to New York, and they sent a telegram, make some more before somebody else gets the idea. Uh, well, I wrote another one called The Gent from Honduras, uh, a dugout with a sail and a goat for milk. And the goat ate the sail, and they stayed out in the open. So, uh, as I say, um, Senate made a picture right after that, before we ever got through with the second one. Yes, yes I, I remember those titles. I think they came out about uh, 1912. Yeah, 12, 13, yes, around that time. Yeah. Uh, did you do any Negro roles at all for Fox? No, that was just for those two. That was the first, I think that was the first time it was ever done by, by white people. Tom Moore and Lottie Pickford were the ones that, uh, uh, with myself, that did the Negroes. We had a scene there in the open where we're supposed to serve ice cream and we're at the way end of the town, so we used cotton on the plates, pink and uh, white cotton there, and the girl brought it out, the wind blew it off, so the next time we took the stick that we used for the beers and stuck them down. But I was the practical actor and I had to eat lard, that was the nearest thing that we could get to, it, to ice cream. <laughs> but the, how we happened to write this Negro thing the director was in a sweat for a whole week. He didn't know what to do. So we wrote the first picture, Tom Moore and I, and we went to a saloon, and there was a picture on the wall of uh, three colored people playing cards barefooted, and one had an ace between his toes, handing it to the other fellow. Eh? And I said to Tom, I said, let's do some of those nigger comedies, uh, uh, colored comedies. So that's how that was developed. But how long did it take you to make a film in the, uh, in the Calum days? Oh, about four days. Four days. Four days. When, when you were with Powers, did you do them in a shorter length of time? Yeah, about two and a half days. And a half days. We used to do two of them, you see. Do oh, two, okay. five, two, uh, two five hundred reelers, you see. An Indian on one, and the next one you were a cowboy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you came to a Ramo, did it take about the same length of time there, or a little longer? No, it took about seven days. Seven, seven days. Six, seven days. And then when you went to Fox, was it still longer? Oh, yes, that, that ran into uh, three to four uh, weeks, you know. Three to four weeks. Yeah, easy that. Uh, when you worked with Virginia Pearson, were you in vampire pick? Was she uh, playing vampire roles, too? No, I don't, I don't remember her playing any of the vampire roles. She didn't actually play those vampire heavies in those pictures. Yeah. I don't remember her doing any of those things. I only worked with in one or two of them. I worked in one of them where I was a, a violin teacher, or a music master, a card player, and a hold-up man, all in, all in one. That was in, Jack, in, in Jacksonville, in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And then with Nance O'Neill, were you in... Um, oh, you were with Betty Nansen, too, weren't yes, you? Oh, yes, Bet yes. it's very funny about Betty Nansen. You see, uh, Fox had engaged her for six pictures, and... Uh, Naturally, when she came, she was a, had a very long nose and very bad teeth. But she could sit with her mouth closed, facing the camera, and the tears would drop without any argument. So I'm in this, uh, they put me with her on a Sunday, and it's taken from the play Rose Michelle, and it's called Should a Mother Tell? So after the first Sunday, she, uh, she rarely came on the set unless she was acting. 
Well, she happened to sit all Sunday on the set and see me tear through this stuff. So on Monday she went to Mr. Fox and says, you know, this is, a, this is not a woman's picture, this is a man's picture. Well, he says, see how good you are, see? And I worked in it and I got terrific write-ups. Yeah. Yes, terrific write-ups on that, yes. Uh, she didn't complete her contract, did she? Didn't she yes, she did. Films? No, she made them all, but uh, uh, the Hunchback and No Dirt Nose and some of those things. Oh, she made five pictures of there. I know well, I five. It was I'm Anna Karenina that she made. Uh, yes, Anna Karenina, yeah, Anna Karenina. Yeah. That's one of those she made. That's oh. yours. Well, you remember that. And then, uh, about how many films did you work in with Theda Barra? Do you remember? Only about four or so. I'll tell you why. You see, and she says, you know, people write to me, you have always a twinkle in your eye. See? She didn't want to work with me, you know. Eh? And But the exhibitors would write in and say, send us another picture with Theda Baron Stuart Holmes. Yeah. Eh? Yeah. So uh, I worked with about four of them. No, no, that was out. That was out here. Yeah. yeah. No, there's something else where the guy walks with a with a limp. Uh, but she, uh, Theda Barra made an early version of that, which came out as uh, the Darling of Paris. I guess that's it. Yeah. I think the thing that killed her more than anything else is when she did uh, Catherine Mavoni, was it? Yeah. Huh? Uh -huh. Yeah. Huh? An Irish girl? My father-in-law. He made quite a sum. He had a goat in his stable, you know, and they came there and they rented him, I think, for the duration of the picture. But as it so happened, they forgot about the goat and he ate up all those old scripts and they had to pay the time. <laughs> <laughs> he made out better than the actors did. Uh, what do you, do you feel was your, your, your finest acting part that you had? Uh, well, I thought, this, I, thought uh, I drug up a director by the name of uh, Carl Harbour. He worked with Raoul Walsh, and uh, he worked with the Greyhound with um, Armstrong on the stage. And I got him as my director, and we did the Scarlet Letter, which I had seen Mansfield play. Yeah, eh? Richard yeah, yeah. see, and I we made that. Yeah. I know that uh, we had a, an exterior of a village, and the night that we the morning we were supposed to shoot, and that overnight. The snow had fallen about, oh, maybe three inches on the houses, and they didn't know what to do. They started to clean it off and try to burn the snow. I said, that's simple. Go ahead, this is a winter scene. We'll shoot it that way. And that's the way we shot it. The funny thing is, you know, the director would, would always direct with a uh, pail of beer under the seat, you know. <laughs> and for the Puritan dames, he dug up all the prostitutes he could find. <laughs> Yes, that was taken from a, a book that I read years ago, uh, The Million Dollar Thief, a roustabout, a fellow that's uh, a simple-minded guy and then finally sees himself in the dream and the money, you know, with the gambling and all that. Yeah. And it was a very successful picture. And then I took the director to see um, a player by Tolstoy, The Living Corpse. Barrymore ever did it afterwards. And I saw Barrymore there, and I saw it and took the director down there. And he said, oh, hell, he says, it's a lot of family stuff, a lot of so-and-so. And I said, let's go to Lush House and talk it over. So we went to Lush House, 
And I said, now the guy is broken, he's a bum. Yes, he said, we'll have him carrying quips at the Pennsylvania station. So I went to the gutter with him and we wrote the story, see? That was the derelict. Oh, eh? yeah. A terrific picture. That, that was yes. uh, made for Fox. Yes. Yeah. It was, a, it was uh, as I say, the living corpse idea modernized. You always got to ham it up a little to get a little action in there instead of dialogue. I get the impression from reading your early reviews that uh, Fox is almost forced into starring you. Oh, yes. Yes. You see, the funny part is when I was making those pictures for Ramo, he said to me, I'm going to build a studio you'll be proud to work in. Well, I got in the jam with the Breach of Promise thing, and I was up up uh, the creek, you know. And I'm over in Jersey when they called me. And so I went in the picture, and I was with them about, oh, about nine months, and they wanted me to sign a contract. See? So I wouldn't sign it. So. Uh, Fox met me in the elevator. He says, you're a fine punk. I said, what's the matter? He says, you know what it is. He asked him about the contract. He says, yes. He says, sign it. He says, if I leave the firm, you're set. I said, when you leave the firm, I'll leave the firm. He says, you're a damn fool. Well, I couldn't very well <laughs> stake it any longer. So I signed it with my own blood. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that, was uh, that was later. See, after that, when when I left that, you see, I came out to California with Benny Leonard and uh, the prize fighter, the champion, and we did a serial at Universal. What was the name of that? Do you remember? No, I don't know. Well, never mind. I can find oh, it later. I've yeah. got it there. Uh, I went with him, and then I made a picture with them again with Jim Kirkwood, Under Two Flags. Oh. Yeah, I played Black Michael in that. Oh. Uh, Bla the Blackhawk. Yeah. With Priscilla Dean and yeah. uh, Jim Kirkwood. <clears throat> Had you been in the first one for Fox with Cena Barra? Were you in that Yes, one? I was in that. Yes, that's right. That's one of them, yes. Yeah. That's where we had uh, camels, and uh, they were wor walking too slow, and the director said, speed up those camels, and uh, Cena Barra's chauffeur took a piece of Mud and threw it at the camel. They all started to buck, and everybody went off of them. <laughs> I got off of my horse because the horse didn't like them. Yeah. That's why I forgot about that. Where, where did you, uh, did you, you must have gone on location. To do the no, over in, over in Fort Lee. Oh. Fort Lee on a lot. I remember one of the guys was jammed between the outside set sitting, held onto the camel, saying, Kiss Kavu, kiss Kavu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you usually have the same cameraman on most of these pictures as you worked with all different? Phil Rosen. Phil Rosen. Did you want some of the names of those cameramen? Sure. I had them in my. Oh, uh, in my uh, yeah. When I see from then after that, I met Rex Ingram, and he engaged me for the Four Horsemen. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he wanted me to play both parts, uh, Eric von Hartrott and my own father. Oh. They, that would have been interesting. Yeah, but they, uh, Joe Engel, they got to him. He said they'll take too much dough for that double exposure. You oh. see. And he had some of the actors that horned in on that anyhow, you see. So uh, in that, uh, we had, uh, as you know, we had Beery in that. Mm -hmm. You remember? Yeah. Raymond Navarro. Oh, no, 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 no. Rudy Valentino, yeah. see, yeah. Wallace Beery, Gene Herschelt. Sykes was the cameraman. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have much, what, what did you register about Valentino in those days? Was he just a... Uh, 
I had seen him in New York dancing with the uh, Joanne Sawyer. Yeah. And out here I saw him in a picture where he played a compromising a wife in a room. I think it was, uh, I forget the leading woman's name now. May Allison? No, it's some dark-haired woman. Well, that's the only time I saw him. Now, when he came on the set, they didn't want him, you know. Rex didn't want him. He was trying to make Theta, uh, Alice Terry the big star, you see. But uh, June Matthews seemed to insist on it, so they dug him up. And he, uh, he came on the set, and I saw him in this great derby, and I said, he looks like an Argentine guy. He looks wonderful. So uh, <clears throat> we were on the picture about a week. <clears throat> so I said to Rex Ingram, the director, I said, you know who's going to steal this picture? And he was cleaning his fingernails, by the way. And he shifted the other foot, and I said, Valentino. Well, he says, Swigert has got a good part, and Alice has got a good part. I says, I'm betting on that guy. So we worked in the picture, and uh, a funny thing, you know, Rex Ingram had a, <clears throat> a diffuser on the lens, like a gauze, for her benefit, you see, and seemed to hold everything back. The wonderful, clear expression that Rudy had in his eyes did not register very much. But there was one shot where Sykes forgot that. <laughs> And you could see the, the, the swarthy skin and the sparkle in his eyes. So uh, the uh, picture went on. And at the end of it, Rudy said to me, he says, I'm going to ask for a raise. You're getting 350. I said, look, keep your mouth shut. When this picture comes out, you won't have to ask for a raise, you see. When he went to the, to the assistant, and the assistant went to Joe Engels and put it very bluntly, the guy is trying to hold us up. And that burned up Engels, see? and the result was that they fired him, you see. But Rudy knew um, Mr. Loeb, you see, and Loeb somebody got him in with Nazimova. Now, I went on hunting trips with him, and I went with, uh, with him to Palm Springs. He used to stay at uh, a woman there with the name of Dr. White. Now, they always tell you about all these d uh, dames, I call them, that claimed that they were uh, taken up with them, like the, uh, that Polish girl, Paula Negra, see, and a few of the others. I never saw a fellow that was less interested. Really? Yes. Yes. It seemed to be something he had seen all that, you see. Yeah. He told me where they tried to frame him in New York, you know, yeah. where the man wanted to dance with Joe and Sawyer. And he arranged it, and then he danced with the wife, and then the husband got mad, you know, and one of those things. Yeah. And I think that's where the, uh, the old bullet hit him, see? <laughs> <coughs> mm. uh, is it true that you were the highest paid actor in the cast of uh, The Four Horsemen? No, I think Beery was. Beery, yeah, Beery. Because Beery, you know, he says, it's time for lunch, let's break. Yeah, I mean, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't take any guff from anybody. Beery was always Beery. Then following the Four Horsemen, uh, you did what? The Prisoner of Zenda? What, did that come out? Yes, out? the Prisoner of Zenda. <clears throat> that came after that. And Rex told me to go down and get the uniforms, four or five uniforms, and I got one of them. And then the others took the other uniforms. And he tried to make another Rudy Valentina out of Navarro. He put him behind me, mugging. And I'd sit in the foreground like Bismarck on my sword, never paying attention to him, you see. And I knew all the tricks. In fact, he wrote me practically out of the script. 
he would talk about Black Michael, see, but not bring him up. Well, the result was every time that I came on, he said, there's the guy, you see. It made so much stronger. Eh? I didn't get a chance to louse myself up, as they say. <laughs> so when we had the preview, uh, I walked out after my death scene. So Rex Ingram called me up the next day. He said, how'd you like the picture? I said, great. Well, he said, what the devil did you walk out for? And I said, look, when I die, that picture's through. <laughs> he says, oh, you louse. <laughs> Well, I knew that I was hemmed in, you see. I knew that I, I, I do nothing, yeah. do nothing. In other words, make a fast exit or a quick exit. Yeah. Yeah, a fast exit uh, or entrance or a slow one, yeah. not in between. See? Yeah. In like that or like this, see, and then stop dead. They worry about a cat on the table, a kitten. All the actors in the world have sunk the moment that kitten gets on the table oh. because they don't know what the devil the thing is going to do. Well, I, I only could think of one thing all my life, to be frank with you. Uh, I saw so many leading men that were putting red paint in their nostrils and worrying about their hair that I naturally would always be just the reverse, you know, lost them up, <laughs> come in and out of the place. <laughs> <laughs> then let me see, now where do we go from there? Well, I can tell you, yes, uh, yes. Uh, <clears throat> no, I, I worked. To, I worked with Jack Barrymore. You see. <clears throat> now, in what film was that? Uh, Men and Lescott. They gave it another name. Oh, when a man loves. When a man loves. We have that. Yeah. Yeah. When I went to uh, when I Barrymore looked at them, they had some man in mind, and he said, "No, he said, get me a, get me another guy. Show me that book," and he spotted my picture. He said, "Get this guy." So I came there and played Louis the 15th or 14, whatever it was. Of course you did. Yeah, right? And you're very yeah. good too. And uh, I saw Barrymore, you know, he had a very poor director. In fact, he's very unfortunate that way with directors. When I went through that, I, when I went to interview him, he says, yeah, he says, all right, he says, the part is yours. And I remember he had a pair of semeticals on that were uh, as though he might have mopped the floor with them. <laughs> Another semeticals. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I have pictures of that of myself. Yeah. You're excellent in that. I re I re of course I remember I did. That. I did the funny stuff, you know. When I leave him, I go into my own room, and, I, and there's this tile floor with cubes, you know, squares, yeah. and I start to do one of those, like, hop, skip, and yeah. dust the way yeah. kids do. I don't know whether they kept that in or not. Uh, yes, it yeah? is. Don't you play, a, isn't he a rather a feet character? With a yes, yes, yeah. Say, I also worked with a, with these two boys, Weber and Fields, you know, and Friendly Enemies. Oh yeah. At that same time, then with Gloria Swanson, her husband's trademark. Oh yeah. Do you remember uh, working on that film? What was it like working with her? Oh, very good. It's funny, you see, she took a kind of liking to me, and I had this red hair, and all she could think of was the red hair. Now she'd be on the set, and I'd be in back of the set, well, somewhere in the vicinity, I could concentrate on her, and she would turn around, and she said, damn you, get off the set, you see. <laughs> and then I'd go behind the set, yeah. and after the scene, she'd invariably find me. I mean, my, I project my thought yeah. right to her. Oh, she was very, she was very petite, very petite. Was that the now, Conrad Fight, you know, he made a picture called... Uh, 
the man who left. Oh yeah. Remember? Yeah. They got a they got a man from uh, Europe, a director, a little fellow. Yeah, Paul Laney, and I came on an interview, and they had about 13 fellows that they took, uh, tried out. So when I came in, he said in German, das ist der Mann, see? Uh, this is the man. So he says, you will go and get the makeup on, and I will be with you, see? So I put the makeup on, and I said, what do you want me to do? And he started to put his hands together and mugging, you know, and I said, this is a kind of a Hogarth character. Well, he says, possibly, see? So I went through this thing and I mugged, I imitated him, so I got the job. Now, the first scene that I had was with Baklanovov, and he started to ride me. I said, after about four or five of those little remarks, I said, look, Mr. Lenny, you better get another boy because this opera doesn't suit me. You see, oh, he says, you are good. He says, you, you, I know, so it's okay. Now, I didn't know how to take him. And uh, finally, we had a scene where I was leaving in one of those, uh, where the men carry, what do they call these things, you know? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, in that, in that period. So I said to him, would it be all right for me to have some grapes and be eating them in this wonderful costume? He says, yes. He says, get some peaches. I said, where are you going to get peaches this time of the year? <laughs> so we used the grapes. And when I came out of the thing, you see, with all this magnificent wardrobe, wiping my hands on the lackey's chest, you see. I start to clown from then on, you see. And he didn't give me quite the break I wanted. I always felt that as long as I was outside, I was a rostabout, like, like Fairbanks, you see. But the moment I get in with that stuffy click, I start to mucking, you see, like an imp, almost like an imbecile, you see, because they were other imbecile people themselves. Now to see a friendly enemy, then three weeks with Eleanor Glynn with her red hair sitting on the set. Very funny. Uh, what was she like? Well... Did she did a fair amount of production? No, she just sat... She might have off stage, but there was so much going around her that she had a boyfriend there that she thought more of than she did of the picture. And tell us about... Uh, let me see. Are you up to the time of Salvation Hunters yet? No, no, no. The Salvation Hunters, as I say, uh, I told you some of it, you see, yeah. but when they when they finished the picture, the man, E.K. Arthur, had his little grocery store across the street, and he used to supply Chaplin with um, uh, vegetables and groceries and chops and things, you see, and he knew the Jap. So when the picture was finished, he went to the Jap and said, look, <clears throat> why can't you get Mr. Bear, uh, Get, get him to look at the picture, uh, Mr. Chaplin, see? He said, I, I will try. So uh, after dinner, he said, Mr. Chaplin, like to see picture? Oh, he said, I don't think not tonight. So he said, maybe maybe one reel, no good, no more show. Eh? So they ran the thing. And Chaplin saw the possibilities, like a man today would look at a Cezanne, you know, and rave about nothing. Eh? So he raved about that, and he got Marion and Doug. And they raved about it, and they engaged them. And, and um, Joe Sternberg wrote a story for them. It's called, uh, I don't remember what the seagull. name was. The huh? the sea, the seagull. Yeah, you know, what, you know what the story was, don't you? <clears throat> Victor McLaughlin was the lead. He was deaf and dumb. Mary Pickford was blind, and the father was a paralytic. So they read the script, and they said, now, this is very nice, but you see there's no humor in it. So 
Sternberg says a good assistant can put in the humor. But he says, who would you suggest? He says, Mickey Nealon. <laughs> so they threw it in the ash can and they put him with Chaplin. And he made a picture with Edna Proviant. And I met Chaplin and I said, how's Joe getting on? He says, he's photographing wood. I said, what do you mean photographing wood? He's up there at Monterey photographing those cypress trees. Well, that picture was never shown. Oh, that was the seagull. Yeah. That was unreleased. Yeah, unreleased. Yeah. Never showed it. Then you see, he went out to MGM and he made a picture there. And he met me at Frank's and I sat down. He says, who asked you to sit down? I says, you, you punk. And he started telling me he had a story where a minister stands at the grave with all the people around with his eulogy and saying, the, and it starts to rain. And the people start to walk away. And he's left alone, still raving uh, with his eulogy. The earth gives away, and he falls in with the with the with the corpse. See, that was the finale of the picture. This is a <laughs> so he went to Europe, and he sent me a postcard. the uh, The water is blue. Uh, the water is green. The sky is blue, and the fish tastes good. Now he comes back here, and he hasn't got a job. So one of the men said, "I can get you a job lighting a set." picture called The Underworld over there at Paramount. So he says, I'll take the job. The director gets sick and he makes the picture and he gets a $10,000 bonus, The Underworld. My wife is an astrologer. She said the guy will last four years and that's exactly how long he lasts. I wish you'd uh, tell us a little bit for the benefit of the tape about working on the Salvation well, I only had two scenes, you see. I mean, I came in, I meet the girl, and she kind of gives me the wink, and she walks up the steps, and I follow her up into the room, and here is a, a little room with a wash basin on, on a kind of a frame with soap suds around it, and one of those things that women uh, put the dresses over, yeah. and a bum couch, and a man and a kid. Yeah. So I come into the place, and I see this woman with her husband and the kid, so I don't know what to do. I, I take out some money and I hand it to her, and she won't take it. And I hand it to the man, and he won't take it, and I hand it to the kid, and he won't take it. So I drop it on the floor, tip my hat, and go out, see? I was called the gentleman, see? That was the title of the part. Now I come outside, and Otto Matisson gets me, and he says, how did you make out? I says, what do you mean? He says, here's my card. And he hands me his card, and uh, Joe Sternberg says, tear it up <laughs> in front of me. So I tore it up and walked out of the picture. It, uh, it was a great picture in a way that uh, I always thought he was one of the best directors. Right? An honorary guy, no good. Right? In fact, he was married in this room. Right? Married in this Yeah. Really? There's more people. You have no idea of the people who have come into this house. My wife is Blanca Holmes with the astrologer, yes. internationally known. Yes. I give you names, you'd be amazed. Yes. Lady Mendel, Princess, uh, Princess Shimei, producers. Yes. I think you'll be more interested in, um, in D.W. Griffith. Yes, please tell me about him. You know, they all, uh, I've known all the actors that have worked with him. I've talked to them. Jim Kirkwood, Owen Moore. Sigmund, Edwin August, they never knew the man. 
I went there, and the first time I went there, the um, he was coming out of a little trap door, and I said, pardon me, Mr. Griffith, may I go into your studio? And he looked at me over my head, he says, enter, see? So I went into the place, and it was, he was doing a scene with the um, kind of a dance hall. And I came in there, and I started to leave, and uh, Spike Robinson, the fighter, said, stick around, he might put you to work. Now, at that time, I was working up there with uh, Pearl White, a day off, because a good place to shoot crap, you know. So uh, he turned around, he says, I want a few more good-looking girls. He says, you, Miss So-and-so, and uh, big fellow, go on as you are, you see, that was me. So I uh, stalled around, followed the piano, and uh, they used to have lines on the side to show how wide the set was, you see. And uh, in the scene, I'd start to gesticulate as though the place was larger, you see. And he said, uh, very good, big fellow, keep that in. So the next scene, I'm sitting, and he says, uh, I want two good actors. So I sat behind the piano, I said, oh, I won't make a break. So they picked Patches and another guy. And I came out, he says, you're late. Sit down in the foreground. And I sat there with the overcoat and a derby hat. And one of his character women came up, took my hat, and put her foot on my knee, you see, as though wanted to take me for a walk, see. And I put my hand on her ankle, and I went up her leg almost to her. Uh, uh, so uh, when Griffin saw the picture, he laughed like hell. He said, who is that guy? He said, that's the guy that plays heavies with, with uh, Pearl White. They said I should have been with him. But he was the man. He would sit back, you see, and he would arrange things. So it puzzled me. So one day I talked to Sigmund, who knew him very well. I said, when did you first meet Griffith? Oh, he says, I knew when he was a lousy actor. He lived on 38th Street near 7th Avenue. I said, what kind of a place? Oh, one of those little bedroom, hall rooms. I said, what did it look like? Well, he said he had a lot of pictures on the wall, those Japanese prints. Eh? So immediately I knew where he got all that great composition. He'd always put a flower in the, in the foreground, you see. Relativity, in other words. Characters always went across the screen or toward the camera, rarely upstage. He knew that. Also, he'd make up the faces very white, and the hands left as they were, you see, so they, like a Rembrandt painting, so it wouldn't interfere. This was the thing that was important. Yeah. See, and when he went outside, he would have the trees sprayed with water, you see, to get that cloud effect and the shine on the leaves, and we'd be made up more white, you see, so that he could develop the film sufficiently to get the clouds in and the, and the highlight on the trees and the darkness of it. He was very, you see, nobody seemed to know the fellow. I've talked to um, Del Henderson, you see, who was his right-hand man. Yeah. Del says, God, he says, I don't know you. I never noticed those things. I see him set a table instead of this way, elongated, you see, so that you got a perspective of depth. Mm -hmm. eh? Now, another thing he would lead his actors, he was really the first Swingali of pictures. Mm -hmm. They didn't know. When they left him, they were through. The only one I could say that uh, was Mary Pickford, that not uh, because he said, she is the woman in me. That's the way he put it. And if an actor was rotten and they wanted to put another one, he says, what the hell? He says, he's convincingly rotten. He says, now if I show him how to do it, he'll be doubly rotten. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd always say, you know, after a scene, after a rehearsal, I didn't know there was so much in that picture. 
Your people did very well. You see, he encouraged the actor. He played with them. They, I used to go there, and I'd see him running. I saw the Gish girls running around as though they were, their heads were cut off. Yeah, I mean, all this flippy stuff in the main march the same way. But he used them. He, he saw the qualities, see? that pathetic stuff. I think uh, and that telltale heart was terrific. And also, his great pictures that he made, you know, the Klansman going along the fence there, you know, that broken down, dilapidated house. And Marshall Gish standing on the steps as he's got this dress on with the cotton with the black spots and picking it. I went with there with the director the first time, this Willie Davis. He says, I counted 16 technical errors. I says, what the hell, did you see the picture? <laughs> he didn't care whether it was a screen door at that time or whether he had boots outside and came in without the boots. To him, the human being was the most interesting. And that is the great thing in pictures personalities, nothing else. I had a note, I say, uh, Griffith, the, uh, now you say the talk about Rudy Valentino that's kept alive all these years. I know more about them than any of them. Right? They've asked me to, to come and speak about him. Now there's a man that was, in my earlier days was Maurice Costello. He was as famous in his way as Rudy. Mm -hmm. He was the great biograph star. Yes, yes. A drunk, see, a mountebank, mm -hmm. but they all are, when you get right down to it. Uh, everyone that Griffith had were drunks, every one of them. See, that that kind of rele releases them. Look at W.C. Fields, Barrymore, and one of the greatest actors, I think, of the 1700s, was Edmund Keane, a, a drunk, a mountebank, and I to this day see or feel, and after reading Good Night, Sweet Prince, that he had in the back of his head all the time, uh, Edmund Keane. I never, I don't know of any actor that impressed me more than Edmund Keane in my, in my life. He's the kind of a fellow that goes, yeah, He's engaged by a man the size of Arbuckle playing Hamlet. And he's playing Polonius with his beard, a little guy. Is he an acrobat, a fighter, a fencer, a writer? And he sees this big lug falling into Felix's lap, saying, Madam, may I lie in your lap? He says, the hell with this. And he starts to do backflips <laughs> in the Polonius outfit. Did you ever work with Von Stroheim, Mr. Holmes? No, no. Or did you work with uh, Stiller? Or the no, 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 uh, no. Which are some of the other directors in, uh, who were active in Hollywood during those years that uh, you'd like to speak about? Well, I, uh, I now happen to be in the last hurrah with Ford, you see. Oh, yeah. Now, I never worked for him before, but he said, he said, come here, Holmes, I want you to work with me. Now, I've watched him, and he's a clever guy. See? I mean, he's really, he's got something on the wall without any fake stuff, you know. He may chew his handkerchief, that's all right. You ever see him do that? No. He chews a handkerchief. <laughs> yeah, out of yeah I think it is, yeah. I think his um, picture he made over there in Ireland, you know, is terrific. The Quiet Man. Oh, yes. Uh, quiet. No, no, the other one, oh, the Informer. Yes, yes. We saw it the other night. Yes. Still as good as the day he made it. On TV. And he knows how to, uh, how to get uh, things out of people. 
And when I first came to California, he had a Duesenberg car, a sport car. He was a very dapper fellow. Today, he's got these dark glasses on, the slouch hat, a patch over the eye. I think that um, Lubitsch was a terrific uh, director. Oh, you didn't work with him? No, I didn't. I, 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 no, I, I went... Uh, uh, I was sent over for an interview to play a musician for Lubitsch. And uh, I rehearsed for him, you see. And I said to him, do you want me to play this as a as a, a homo? Oh, no, 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 no. And <laughs> uh, the mind up was, yeah, I had a homo play the part afterwards. <laughs> I must have suggested it to him. <laughs> Mickey Needle was a very good director, yeah. see, great sense of humor. I, never, I worked in one picture with him. Uh, I was engaged, and I was seven weeks, I think, on the picture. The seventh week I showed up. I worked one day. When I came in, he said, here's my overhead. He's the one also that said about Louis B. Mayer when he updrew an empty taxi and in step, outstepped Louis B. Mayer. <laughs> <laughs> Those things don't help you, you know. Did you have any other contact with Lubitsch at all? No, no. No, but you see, he had a background. He had a European background. He himself was a comedian, you see, and he knew timing and situations, you see. Now, there's another man here that's... Yeah, I'm trying to think of his name. Another German. Yeah. Uh, currently? No, he's been here a long time. Big, tall fellow, wears white gloves. Daedaly, oh, yeah. I don't know, he's a kind of a mental maniac too, you know. He has something of the qualities that we find in Reinhardt to bend the actors to their way, you see, which is wrong. They, they kind of kill your personality. They think it should be played the way they would play it, you yeah. see. Did you ever work with uh, Cecil B. DeMille? Uh, n nothing important, no, nothing important. But but he has, he's very good, you know, for mobs. Mm -hmm. uh, very good for mobs and bedrooms and stuff. But um, yeah. it's commercial stuff. I, do, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't give him any any Oscar for anything he's ever done. <laughs> what, uh, which, do you, which of your own films are your own particular favorites? Which of your, your own acting performances would you pick? Well, I, th I think uh, The Derelict, as I say, The Scarlet Letter, and The Broadway Sport. Mm -hmm. those, those yeah. What are the performances of other actors and actresses that you have admired in other films? What comes what, um, immediately to mind? as uh, what you might even call great performances in motion pictures of other actors and actresses. Oh, I think uh, Walt Thaw in The Avenging Conscience. Yes. And there was a... Jennings, The Last Command. Isn't that a marvelous movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have yeah, yeah. yeah. By the way, did you ever have any contact with him? Did you know him when he was out here? Or did you yes. Oh, a very funny thing. You see, when he was out here, he worked for Joe Sternberg, and uh, he had a run-in with Joe. See, Joe would browbeat you. That was one of his tricks. And I met him at the fight with uh, Mel Sinclair. And he says, oh, he says, a terrible person. I wouldn't work for him again. He was a terrible person, you see. This is what he said in America. Now he goes back to Europe. 
And what happens? Joe Sternberg is sent to Europe and he, he engages him for the Blue Angels there. Yeah? And it was a terrific part. Yeah. Yeah? He couldn't have got a better director for that. No, no. No. No, I guess. Well, um, you see, he went wrong, I think, on Catherine the Great. I would like to see Mae West play that. Well, the Scarlet Empress, you mean, Yeah. 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 Mae West would have been the one, you see. Instead of Yes, you know, I mean, you see this. He took her when she was a fat girl, you know, working on those bum German films. And he took her. And he raised her eyebrows. He gave her that, that pale face of the Marie Lorenzen painting. Oh, yeah. Eh? yeah. And I used to talk to him. I said, look, you know, Griffith always had them. They never knew what they were going to do. He said they were always uncertain. Eh? He, and that was the great secret with Griffith stuff. Mm -hmm. He enacted this. He stands there. You hear somebody coming. Let your eye turn to the right. You hear him. Now, now slowly turn around and you see him. And you come right by. Hold that now. Who is that fellow, you see? That's the way he worked with uh, with his people, Griffith. Now, Joe Sternberg remembered that, you see, the less you do and to throw them off. I think in one picture, uh, kind of an Algerian picture, he, he had her standing at the uh, rail of the boat with the actor. He says, are you going back to Morocco again? Well, she says, I don't know, and she turned her head and her eyes went up, and then her eyes went around. I may go back and all this, you see. In other words, you're tricking your audience, you see. That was that Yeah, well, let's see. That, see, I mean, he re he's a smart guy. He remembers those things. He told me, he said, you know, you should be directing. I said, why? Well, he says, very simple. He says, what happens? A man comes in the room, and a woman is sweeping. He says, are you Mrs. So-and-so? Yes. Your husband fell off a scaffold. We're bringing him home. Eh? So now, what would an ordinary woman do? She'd throw the broom away and go into hysterics. No. The dame is so dumb, you see. She's got that broom, and that seems to be more important to her, and she starts sweeping. He says, you see, it's reversing the angle. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is a conversation between Yes. Between, yes. yes. He said, as I told you, when, when he had, the fellow hands me his card, I'm supposed to be, I'm titled the gentleman. He wouldn't tear up a man's card, visiting card, in front of his face, would he? No. No, but that's just what he does, you see. He does just the reverse to what you expect. Yes, very good. Yeah, very, very good, very clever. No. Now, let me see. Um, you have some further notes, sir? Some things you'd like to talk about, Mr. Holmes? No, I just had that about uh, Griffith and who are the great idols that you've known of your day. Mm -hmm. well, I think the, uh, Tom Sanchi. Yeah, Tom Sanchi and Walter Houston, naturally. I mean, you can't, you can't pass him up. And in women, I think Frazenda is a comedian. I worked with her in a picture. I was over there in the studio, and they engaged me. And I said, where do we work? I thought it was Metro, you see. And they said, Universal. I said, what? I didn't know. I thought it was Metro. No, it's Universal. Earl Kent, who directed for Max Sennett. So I go over there, and I see the set. He says, you're a banker's son with a cutaway and a high hat. So I come there, and there's a desk and a picture up on the wall. I said, what do I do? Well, he says, you sit here, and when difficulties arise, you look up, and I'll have a guy up there made up as Napoleon, and he'll, he'll say yes or no to you, you see. 
So I look at the guy, he's got an overcoat on, I check the overcoat in the derby, he has the director, or Kenton. I see Fazenda walking by, and I see Hank Mann, I see Chester Conklin. I says, what the devil are they doing here? He says, they're in this picture. I said, wait a minute, what is this? He, well, he's a semi-comedy <laughs> Well. What was the name of this film, do you remember? <laughs> Tea with a Kick. Oh. Tea with a Kick. Uh, a, a woman, Wallace McDonald, Wallace, Wallace something, Wallace McDonald, and his girl, I forget the girl's name, Day, I think it was. They were running a, a tea parlor, but they were serving booze. Hey? So I'm the I'm the stooge, and I go over there, and I report it to the uh, revenue man. And the revenue man says to me, he says, you're very good, and he starts to slap me on the chest. See, and I've got a bottle of booze in there myself, see? <laughs> so when... When he does that, I realize, see, so I said, well, what about that, that man over there? And I switched the bottle to the other side, see? <laughs> so when he starts to pat on that place again, the bottle isn't there, you see? <laughs> so uh, as I'm leaving, I said, gentlemen, I'm through, or whatever it was, and I take my hat and put it on, and as I'm putting it on, the guy hands me the cane, you see, and nicely, the bottle falls, see? <laughs> <laughs> and the two, I leave, and the two guys rush for the bottle. Hey, this is all fast work, fast work. I rush for the bottle, or they rush for the bottle as I go out, and there's space under the door, and I've got the cane, and you see me pulling the bottle out, all through the picture, with present. I never saw a woman that could take a spoon and a cup and do more with it than anybody. I, I never saw anybody like her. I think she's the greatest comedian. She and, to, to me, Ford Sterling, yeah. those two. Very good, very good. Then another man uh, wants to engage me, and my agent said, this guy says you're high-hatted him. I said, who the hell is he? I don't know who he is. He's a guy by the name of so-and-so. I don't remember. When I go on the set, they engage me finally. And I see this fellow, and I remember he engaged me for one day for $100 out of the Universal, and I had a high-hat on and, and tails, and we're walking around, and then there's a scene where I sit down at a, an outside table and, and the girl next to me, and then the table of flowers. Well, if we hadn't rented that, so the prop man came along and took it away. So I wound up by pretending I was sitting on something, and the property man was holding the flowers in the, into the line of the camera, the where the table would have been, you see. Mm -hmm. So the guy says, I hi-hatted them for Christ's sake for one day. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> that was called um, heirlooms. So I got in the picture, I got into this picture, Schnitz Edwards and uh, oh, a bunch of comedians, and I started giving business. There was a big banquet, the one about the glass with the hole in it, you know, the wine that runs down your shirt, and uh, then the mothballs in the pocket, and the guy takes out his handkerchief to perspire, you know, and the mothballs fall out. Yeah. He gives this to the other fellows, now I have nothing, so all I could do was let my suspenders, my light suspenders down, eh? I let them down, and I come in as I bow, you'll see the suspenders are not in the right place. So I sit down, and Schnitz Edwards gets up and takes the hangers about, and the mothballs fall out in front of me, see? So naturally, we know what a mothball is. Yeah. I pick it up see, and, and chew it like I would sugar. <laughs> the reason huh? these things are so funny is because you were so fr frequently, you, you were usually the dignified type on the screen. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, That's with me. So well, I, no, well, they didn't. You see, I had a light, a light makeup on, and the hair was red, and then you see the, the eyebrows are made up, and the dark mustache, and all the rest is like a dead pan. Yeah. And you have a heavy order overcoat out in the middle of summer, you see. Yeah. And you never know what the hell you're going to do. You're, you're walking around, you stumble into things, you see. Well, we, made, we worked in the picture. Now, this director had no use for me, see. I'm in the picture. Grover Jones was his name. Spitzer Grover Jones was the production. It was supposed to be a Harold Lloyd to take his place. Mm -hmm. So I start to clown. <clears throat> We're in the picture about a week, and he said to me, uh, we ran some of this stuff, and my wife thinks you're funny. See? Huh? Well, at the preview, every time that I came on, they howled. Didn't do a goddamn thing. And when we came outside, he said to me, if I hadn't had you, I wouldn't have had a picture. It was never shown around here, you know. No. Now, a director by the name of Frank O'Connor, he saw it. He said, I never saw a guy funnier than you were. You can imagine the guy coming in the room uh, in an office, but the will is being read, and the girl, you tip your hat to her, she says, uh, uh, who are you waiting uh, for the will? So sit down. So I sit down, and there's a shot of me looking at her. She's taking a piece of gum and stuck it under the uh, chair, you see, and the heat of it, I'm sitting on a radiator, see, the heat of it, the gum is falling down, and she thinks I'm looking at her legs. Mm -hmm. See? So she says, what are you waiting for? I said, for the will. He said, they've been in there half an hour. Now, all seats are taken again, and that's where I sat on the radiator, perspiring. Oh. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of stuff that I did. Yeah. Fee, fee, ya bum. Is it your chair? Yeah. It's a, it's a hermaphrodite. You know, the earlier part, you asked me how I happened to get into pictures. I told you with the Edison Company. As I say, they served you beer and, and sandwiches. Well, I don't know of any... There used to be a man by the name of uh, Horace Plimpton, a carpet merchant or something. They made him a head of the outfit. And he would come on with a cigar and to see what the, uh, how the scene was before they shot it. And all he could think of was whether your pants were too long or whether they were too high, but never nothing about acting. <laughs> was Porter still there? Yeah, Porter was still there, yeah. The, the, what was his uh, concern with production? Was he ever on oh, no, Porter, Porter wasn't there. Porter had... Porter, you see, came out here. No, he, 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 he was doing talkies, see, early on the recording, on, on, uh, I think, on a disc for Lemley. But there was a man by the name of Turner, you know, that came out here. He directed for Cedic in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. He came out here for Lemley to find a location for a studio, and he found the Universal lot. And Mr. Lemley made up a present of a beautiful watch for finding it. He couldn't think of anything better. <laughs> I was trying to think of, oh, yes, you know, uh, when I came there, the first day with the Edison, they made a hack driver out of me with a heavy melting coat and a high hat, you know. Now, the studio is made of glass. And they had these aristo lamps, terrific heat. I stumbled around all day, and I finally threw the stuff in the corner, and I left. 
<coughs> I went on the road. About two months later, I went back again, and they made a Chinaman out of me. Now, with a mustache and this big nose of mine, eh, with a queue and a laundry basket on my head. And in the in the acting, some guy knocked us in, knocked the wig off and the uh, and the basket. So I quit again. But I used to go around there, and they would pick everybody, but uh, myself and a guy by the name of Brabant, who became a director. They considered him a kind of a magician, a guy that would take a rabbit out of a hat. He didn't fit in. He seemed to go over everybody else in height, you know. He was like, like a lamppost that was put in a flower bed. Henry Kronjäger, yes. Wait a minute, Henry Kronjäger. We'd rush for a location to take a train coming in. He forgot to take the lens with him. Yeah, wait a minute. Always right before I shot, he'd say, wait a minute, Henry. I'm trying to think. I rode a horse one time out there, and the horse backed up and was halfway in the well. He was sunken well, half covered up well. Then we went to Ticonderoga. Yeah. Do you know the names of any of those early films that you were in? No, no, there were so many of them, you see. I'd, I only jumped in and out, I mean, for uh, the sake of the sandwich and a couple of laughs. I never took the thing seriously. In fact, never any of them. They always seemed to come to me. I was never went after a job. If I finished the picture out here, even, yeah. I'd disappear in the mountains somewhere on a hunting trip. Yeah. And uh, with... Uh, Gloria Swanson, the fire ones, the game ones, were digging me out of a canyon up here. Eh? The moment I got through with the picture, I was through with it, and I wanted a good time, so I'd, I never went out to get drunk, I mean. And in New York, the same thing, instead of going to a cafe, giving the head waiter a, a tip, getting a good table, getting publicity, which I never went after, I'd go to a Chinese joint, eh? right down in Chinatown, get that good food, or to Lushard once in a while. Eh? No, I don't. No, no, no. They used to be in a kind of a funny booth. No, I don't remember. The first ones I think to do that was the um, well, the Warner Brothers put the switch. The Warner put the switch on the whole thing. They, they threw the the wrench into the outfit. The pictures the way they are now, you see, is very peculiar. There's a cycle taking place. They don't seem to realize it. And see, for instance, there's a sign in the astronomy called Sagittarius. And there's a heavy planet in that. It was in Scorpio uh, two years ago. And that uh, Scorpio rules death. That rules that studio over there, the RKO. A church house right next to it. It's a destructive thing, you know. King Kong, the crime doctor, and all those things. Well... That's two years ago, and that is when the gangsters wanted to come in and buy it. You remember, it rules the underworld. Now, RKO comes—not RKO, but uh, Republic comes under Sagittarius. And again, that heavy planet is in there now. That's why they're on the skids. You see, I doped out the, all these studios. You know, every one of them. I had an article in the Time magazine on the strength of them. And they—they they say to me, for instance. How did you know about their birthdays? Well, I said I knew them. I didn't know them, but I knew enough about astrology by looking at the lithographs, you see. Yes. 
the things they produce is what tells you. Same as when a man talks. You can goddamn near tell what their, <laughs> what their birthday is over the phone. You don't have to see them. Well, now that I've told you all my troubles, <laughs> how I got into the game, and I'm still bumming around in it because it's uh, not ambitious at all. Just simply keep going, you know. I do my wood carving at times, and I've even stopped that a little now, and I'm, I listen to television, which is not so hot for the <laughs> picture business. <laughs> well, thanks very much for the interview. Thank you, Mr. Holmes, for giving so generously of your time to make this excellent tape for George Eastman House. You can cut a lot of it out, you know, you'll have to, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs>